and that love overflows into my life. And many of you here today have that similar story. But I'm also thankful for my wife who shows me the gospel every single day with her love and kindness and raising our children in the Lord. I watch these two women in my life and I see how God created them and how beautiful and how wonderful His grace is in my own life. I'm not deserving of that, for sure. And yet, they show that to me. For all the other mothers out there, we're going to take this day to say thank you to you. We're grateful to you. We honor you today for all the work, all the love, all the patience that you have with us. We also want to be sensitive to, to those who are, are not mothers. Maybe they are spiritual mothers and have discipled young people in our church and have invested in the young people in this community. And we thank you for pouring out your love to the next generation. We also want to pray for soon-to-be mothers. Hope had a t-shirt that says her first Mother's Day. She's soon-to-be. And also we want to pray for those to this day who are praying for a child and God has not granted them a child yet. And we want to walk with you and pray with you through that time just as Hannah prayed for a child. We want to pray that God grants you a child if that is your desire. So we're going to pray right now for our mothers. So will you join with me in prayer for the women in our life? Father, we thank you we are so undeserving of your grace that you gave us mothers that love us, that care for us. And Father, we thank you for these women in this room. We thank you for, Father, their love for you first. Their love for their sons and daughters. And Father, as the As the scriptures tell us, Father, we just pray that you would give us strength to love our children, to recognize they are a gift unto the Lord. And Father, we, we ask that you would be with them this day, that you would give them the strength, the ability to do what you've called them to do by pouring their life out to their sons and daughters so they can be used for your glory for the mission of God. Lord, we thank you for these women. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, God's design for the family is amazing. And at Northwest, we uphold God's plan for the family. Our God is a family God. Amen? I'm going to be teaching a series in the fall on the family. I'm excited to see and to teach God's plan for biblical womanhood, biblical manhood, raising children, marriage, and all sorts of topics that the gospel applies and speaks into the life of the family. The family has come under attack in our day and age. But one of the truths that we must understand before we get into the application of these truths is who is this Jesus. 
And this morning, we're going to open up to one of the more famous passages of Scripture, often shared at funerals, and one of the most shocking and bold statements of Jesus. We are in our series, The Great I Am, and we're seeing who Jesus himself declares himself to be God. He declares to the disciples and to the world who he is. As God declared to Moses, tell the people, I am has sent you. God is saying, I have no beginning. I have no end. I exist. And with these I am statements, Jesus is showing the people that he is the word made flesh and made his dwelling among Man, last week we saw John Hill. He did a great job of showing us Jesus as the gate, how God has given Christ to be the door into eternal life, the door that enters into the flock of God, the door in which we must go through Jesus Christ himself. Giving up his life on the cross opens the door to eternal life. And this week we look at the saying, I am. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. It's a beautiful picture of how we can rest in the arms of Christ knowing that we ourselves cannot do it. We cannot go our own way. We cannot do enough on our own. But guess what? Christ is enough, and the gospel grants us freedom to rest in the arms of the grace of God. So I'm preaching this sermon this morning with the same intent that the apostle John had in writing the gospel of John, in which he says in John 20, 31, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So let's turn with me to John chapter 14. We're going to read uh, verse 1 through 14, if you will. Page 901 in your Bibles. And stand with me as we read God's word together as the authoritative word of God. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, We do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. So Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. 
But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on accounts of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Please have a seat. The word of the Lord this morning. If that was the sermon this morning, I think you'd get enough for the full full day. There's a lot there. And it's pretty clear. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the bumper stickers or the t-shirts that, that say house divided, right? You, you have these, these ticker, stickers or uh, t-shirts, house divided. We have um, a division in our household when it comes to the issue of parenting styles. I'm, just, I'm sure there's just one, but uh, I'm just going to share one with you. Ours is over the children going barefoot, okay? So just to let you know that, just an insight into our life, the stickers, the rocks, the tetanus shots, I, I'm not gonna talk to any more about that, but we will have one parent who will remain nameless that doesn't mind the children going barefoot everywhere, right? Fire walking may be in our children's future, I'm not sure. Then we have another parent, he, he will remain nameless, and <laughs> he has special shoes in which he goes into the pool and goes swimming in so his feet don't hit the pool. Doesn't matter what, where he's at, he's got to have shoes on. You can see how this is a problem, right, when it comes to children. Raising children up, um, a child comes running into the house with a stub toe and, and, and bleeding, and one parent is, I told you so, and the other one is, show some mercy. <laughs> so a few days ago, we were laying our heads down on the pillow, on all important, where all important life conversations happen, right, on the pillow, and there came up a topic of some new research that had come about about how it's healthier for your children to run barefoot, right? It, it, the, the article, I read the article, it says it promotes balance and strength and, and can, the shoes can cause problems for your children's development if they don't fit right. And I, I hadn't read the article, and the first question that I asked was this, was this a Facebook blog? <laughs> and we folks began to laugh. But guess what? There's a lot of information out there. Some good, not so, some not so much. Some just sharing whatever they believe. All that to say, I don't recommend going blogging to random sites for the sake of blogging. But I was reading the other day on this topic we're studying this morning. And I came across an author, Anne Shabani. She, she helps people write books. She has her own master's from Harvard. And she had a blog article, right? I'm sure you understand that. 
And the title intrigued me because the title was Choose Your Own Path Up the Mountain of Life. Choose your own path up the mountain of life. And I said, that's our voice of the world today. Everyone wants to get to the top, the pinnacle of life. And they want to go their own way. You know, she gave three lessons in the article. I read the three lessons. These are the three lessons. Lesson one, there are many paths that lead to the top. Lesson two, the hardest route is usually not the right one. Lesson three, to persist to the summit is the key to self-worth. I mean, you can see how somebody can post one of those on their Facebook and quote, and there are many paths to the top. To persist to the summit is the key to self-worth, right? Be careful what you post on Facebook. It might end up in a sermon. No, it, I'm just, just saying. But it's completely counterculture for Jesus to say, I am the way. In a, in a culture that says, choose your own path, Jesus says, I am the way. In a culture that says, take the easiest route, Jesus says, I am the truth. Therefore, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. In a culture that says, keep pursuit of your own accomplishments, keep going to the top. It's the key to your self-worth. Jesus says, I am the life. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may lift you up in due time. The gospel is counter-culture. To live in this gospel is alien to what the world believes. Some of you in here, you may be thinking to yourself, how can you believe this? I mean, isn't it a bit arrogant for Jesus to declare not only himself as God, but also to use the definite article describing that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life? I mean, this is kind of the question here that the disciples are trying to figure out. I mean, where, where are you going? What is the way? I don't know the way. I mean, what, is, what are you talking about? And it's the question that our culture and the people today in this room have to answer. Who is this Jesus? Because if he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life, then that changes things about how we live our life. Now, just to give a little bit of context here for John 14. Jesus has shown his love to his disciples by washing their feet, showing them what the church should look like by laying down our life for one another. And he says, and after this discourse, after washing the feet and saying you should do the same and, and love for one another, in chapter 13, verse 33, he says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me. 
Just as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you where I'm going, you cannot come. Obviously, this, this causes some anxiety in the, in the disciples. They've left everything to follow him. And now he's saying, I'm leaving and you can't come. This leads to Peter in, in verse 36. I, I see a lot of myself in Peter here. He says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, I, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. I love this. I, I don't understand, Lord. I, I will do anything for you. I can do it all on my own. Yet Jesus says to him, you can do nothing apart from me, Peter. You can do nothing apart from the power of my spirit within you. I'm going to teach you, Peter, what it means to rest. In the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Then he begins chapter 14 with compassion and love because he knows his, the, the hearts of the disciples are troubled. They're troubled in their heart. And he, he begins and he says, let your hearts not be troubled. Some, some of you in this room, your hearts may be troubled. You may be anxious or, or fearful of the future or fearful of what you're going through. And, and, and Jesus is speaking to you through his word this morning. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. And then he tells us why. Why should your hearts not be troubled? And why should you trust in me? In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm not going to leave you here forever. I'm coming back and I'm taking you to be with me. This is our first point this morning. It comes through this section. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is the way to God. Jesus is not a way. Jesus is the way. Peter actually shares this truth a little later in a sermon that he shares with to the Jewish leaders at the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4. And he says this, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You know, I, I look through this section, I'm reading this section, it's, it's very clear and it's interesting. Jesus clearly says, I'm going to the Father's house. I, 
I'm going to prepare a place for you to come as well. But, but Thomas and the disciples, every, everywhere you read about Thomas, he's doubting, right? Which uh, a lot of us in this room could be like Thomas. And that's okay because he's one of the disciples and he gives his life for the cross of Christ. And he, he, he understands the gospel that gives hope for us who doubt in this room. But Thomas says, how, how can we know the way? I mean, where, where are you going? I, I'm thankful for God's grace and his patience with me. Amen? But Jesus says, you know the way I'm going. Look at verse 4. And you know the way to where I am going. You know it, but you still haven't put all the pieces together. We don't know, Thomas says. How can we know the way? So we don't even know where you're going. How can we know the way? But Jesus, I mean, we've been studying this through the I Am statements in the, in the book of John. He's already declared to the disciples that he is the bread. I am the bread. I am the resurrection of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I don't know how much clearer we can get here. But Jesus says, I'm just going to be completely clear now. Okay? Here it is. I am the way. I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, he is the only way we can return to God and his design to be in relationship and fellowship with us. You see, it was in the garden that God walked with man. He walked with his creation. He loved his creation. And man walked with God in perfect fellowship. And guess what happened? This was broken by sin. Man was cast out of the garden that God had prepared for him. And at the end of Genesis 3, it says, A flaming sword that turned every way kept people from going towards the tree of life. Jesus says, I'm the way. You can't return any other way. I can bring you back into fellowship with your creator. You see, our world today says that there are many ways to God, just like our blogger friend we heard earlier. Many people believe that all paths lead to God or all religions are good. They essentially teach to do good and you can choose your own path. Being a missionary in Thailand, we saw this regularly. Being a pastor in America, we see this regularly, right? One of the most disturbing things, though, I ever saw in Thailand was I walked next door to the house that we were staying at, and I walked into this room, and this guy was, uh, he was showing me this. He knew that, that I was a follower of Jesus, and he knew I was kind of a religious person, and so he was so proud to show me his room it was full of idols from the bottom of the floor to the top of the ceiling, full of idols. All sorts of gods, Hindu, Buddhist, Vishnu, Buddha, money, hundreds of idols, statues. But that wasn't the most disturbing thing that I saw. 
right in the middle of his idolatry was a picture of Jesus. You see, many people would say, yeah, Jesus died for me. Yeah, he is God. He takes away my sin. Great. Let me add him to one of my many gods. I'll place Jesus next to Buddha. I'll I'll place him next to my sun god. I'll place him next to my tree god. I'll place him next to my goddess of fertility. In America, it's I'll, I'll take Jesus, but I'll, I'll make this Jesus who I want him to be. I'll add him to my God of self. I'll add him to my God of money. I'll put him in the middle of my God of lust, and I'll call it good. Jesus, I'll worship you, but I'm going to also worship all these other gods. Jesus says, no, there's only one way. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may say, well, well, isn't that a little bit arrogant? Isn't that a little bit narrow-minded to share this message that Jesus is the only way? Why can't there be another, another way? I'm, I'm six foot four, and, and certain airlines, especially when you jumping on a plane back to Oklahoma City, you feel as if your knees are getting into a kiddie ride at the fair, right? I mean, that's what you feel like when you enter into the airplane, and uh, especially for us tall people. And guess what? When you get into that seat, you're always looking for that emergency row exit, right? You're always looking for that emergency row because that's just got a little bit more, like six or seven inches more leg room. And out of the corner of your eye, you're looking for that. Can I, can I get in that seat? Is somebody going to sit there? But if you've ever been lucky enough to live in that kind of luxury in the emergency exit row, you'll know a stewardess comes along and says, are you able and willing to assist in case of emergency? You know, and you, you have to affirm, yes, yes, I'm willing. I understand my responsibility as a uh, emergency exit row sit person. Um, yes, I'm very experienced in airplane crashes. I've only been in a few times, you know, but I, I'll, I'll make sure I get it done if, if it happens, right? No. But what if somebody in the back, let's say just row 65, seat D, raises their hand while she's going over this and says, you know what? I'd really rather go out this way. I think this is the exit. I desire to choose my own path, so I desire that this be the designated exit row. I'd like to think the stewardess would come up to this person in 65D and say, Sir, that's that's fine. You can call this the exit row if you want. You can even think that your row is going to save you. But the creator who designed the plane placed the exit row here. And if the plane goes down and it's on fire and you try to go out your row, it's probably not going to work out that well for you. You see, the stewardess is not arrogant in saying this is the exit row. Because the designer of the plane created it to be there. 
You see, Jesus was always God's design for salvation. Jesus declares that he is the way, and he proves that through the resurrection of Christ. So let's look on and see what he says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. At least, at least it's not uh, Thomas here. At least it's another disciple, right? Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever says he has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is the second point, this section. Jesus is the truth of God. Jesus is the truth of God. He is God with us. He is the truth. Jesus in this section equates himself with the Father. Verse 9 says it very, very plainly. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says this, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He is the way. He is the God of the Old Testament who leads them along the way. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light that they may travel by day and by night. Jesus says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Verse 11 Believe on the account of the works themselves. Remember the five loaves and the two fish? Disciples? Remember my friend Lazarus? Remember the storm? How I calmed it? Remember the healing of the sick, the blind, the mute? Do you know who you're talking to? But the ultimate work is the resurrection, right? You see, all that Christ said is truth because of the resurrection. Guess what? Muhammad is in the grave. Buddha is in the grave. Confucius is in the grave. Joseph Smith is in the grave. It is the resurrection in which Jesus says, believe that I am the truth, that we can believe that he is the truth because he lives. This is what Scripture teaches us. In our day and age, we... We have this trouble 
with absolute truth. They're having the same trouble back in this day and age. Our culture screams from the rooftops, do what you want because there is no absolute truth because truth is relative to every person. What does that mean? The culture, the world shouts that every person decides for themselves what's right rather than a creator who says, this is the way, walk in it. In India, they're very pluralistic. They have the Hindu religion. And they have a parable that tries to say there is no absolute truth. Because otherwise, you couldn't worship their many gods. If one was correct, you couldn't worship the other ones. So there's no absolute truth. It's just relative to whoever you want to worship, whenever you want to worship, however you want to worship. In the parable, they say they have three blind men walking up to an elephant. One feels and describes the trunk, and he says, oh, this elephant is like a snake. Another one walks up to the body of the elephant, and he describes the elephant as a wall. The other one touches the elephant's tusk and says, oh, the elephant is like a spear. And then they say, you should all be open to what each other's description of the elephant is. They were right in what they saw, yet they were wrong to argue that they saw the whole thing. So they should, so you should be open to all religions so you will be closer to the actual truth. That's what their, their parable said. Leslie Newbigin, a missionary to India, said in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, that he heard the parable so many times that he finally realized that in order to tell the story, you had to see the whole elephant. In order to tell the story of the three blind men, you had to see the elephant. You're claiming the very thing that you said no one else could do by having a severe, superior vantage point. The point is, Jesus says, I have a superior vantage point. I can see the whole thing, and I am the way, the truth, and the life because I designed the elephant. You see, there is no absolute truth without a designer, a creator. And yet Jesus says, I am the truth. By me, all things were created in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the truth. We're going to finish here in verse 12. This might be the most important section for us in application and understanding. We're almost done. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Guess what? When Jesus goes to the Father, he sends the Holy Spirit. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Guess what? This is our last point. Jesus is the life both now and forevermore. Jesus promises those who believe in him eternal life, but he also promises those who believe in him will do the work of Christ. Will have life now. We're not talking about uh, greater works in, in power, but greater works in extent. 
You see, the disciples will become witnesses to the whole world through the power and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. The whole book of Acts is filled with powerful works, works of God. Yet, one of the most prevalent works of God is the hearts of people responding to the message of the gospel and gathering together as a church to glorify the name of Christ. That's what Acts is about. Guess what? If you want to have life now, live in the power of the Holy Spirit. You want to be a church that has life Be a spirit-led church. Be a Christ-centered church. Be a church that glorifies God. You see, Christ is saying, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. This is not just Jesus tacking on at the end of a prayer, in Jesus' name I pray. This is aligning your heart and your mind and your will with the will of God. This is saying, whatever you ask to the glorification of Christ and his purposes, will God himself not come and act in the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes, he will. The Holy Spirit is alive. The Holy Spirit is alive in those who pursue what Christ desires for their life. This is life. So if you become bored with the Christian walk, or you're scared, or you're lonely, or you're just passing the time, missing out on the life that God has for you today. Doing the work of God in the power of His Spirit. Be on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit and watch your life become alive. You see, the self-centered Christian One says, I can get to the top of the mountain, my own path. Finds himself without the Spirit of God. Empowering him to accomplish God's purpose. He finds himself chasing after the wind. Jesus says, I am the life. Now and the eternal life. Live. Be a people that lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Father, this morning there are those that may have heard this for the first time, the gospel of grace, that you loved us enough that you would become, that you would be willing to come down, lay your life down on the cross for us. Father, that changes how we view you, it changes what we do with our daily lives because we know that you live, we know that you are the truth, we know that you're the way, we know that you bring life. So our response, Father, this morning is nothing more than to say, what do you want from me, Lord? What do you want from my life? Give it to you. Let's be a church that lives in the power of the gospel. Let's be a church that walks in the spirit of God.
not in our own way, not in our own path, but by God's grace, 